Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics, a podcast dedicated to exploring how things get places and the people who get them there. We'll talk with logistics and supply chain leaders about innovation, industry trends, and the future of the logistics business. Now, here's your host, Joe Lynch. Hello, friends. Welcome to the Logistics of Logistics podcast. My name is Joe Lynch. Thank you so much for joining us today. Today's topic is the Swan Leap story with my friend Brad Hollister. How's it going, Brad? Good afternoon, Joe. How's it going down? So we were just started the podcast, and Brad is in sunny Puerto Rico, and we were doing it while he was on his deck, which was great because I could watch the beautiful life he has. But now he had to go indoors because the ocean was too damn loud. Guys, life is hard down in Puerto Rico. Yeah, so- I need to buy a, a sound bar here to watch TV or watch a, a game. Like, shut up, ocean. I'm trying to watch Netflix. Yes. So, Brad, please introduce yourself and your company. And I already said where you're at, but where you're at today. Yeah, I'm Brad Hollister, founder of Swan Leap, co-founder of Swan Leap with uh, Jason Swanson. And we were recently acquired by TI Holdco, uh, which is more known for as Transportation in- Insight and with, a, with their family of companies. So it's been a, a, a wonderful adjustment and transition and happy to be here joining you. Tell the story. Yep. I'm, I'm excited to hear it. So I've always heard about Swan Leap, but we talked on the phone the other day and you told me a little bit about it. I never really knew the whole story. It's I, Sometimes I just get bits and pieces and I knew the name, but I didn't know the uh, the company. So um, first off, what what did Swan Leap do or what does Swan Leap do? I'm sorry. Yeah. So Swan Leap really was there to make a better TMS, make a TMS run with newer technology be more adjustable, be more trans- configurable, you know, quicker to deploy and actually work better and smarter. So we tackled small parcel LTL truckload and uh, just started dipping our toe into some ocean problems that people were having when, when we were acquired. We grew through listening to our customers and, and our customers were like our best cheerleaders out there because we were plugging holes that they couldn't find solutions to in the market. So really TMS te- technology on the execution piece Uh, We also helped to receive the freight bills, uh, had some automation around freight payment audit, and then helped to also line them up with other known providers in the market. Like find new trucking companies, find new LTL strategies, find new parcel carriers, et cetera. So it was a a multi-pronged approach there. So when did you sell to Transportation Insights? And tell us a little bit about what Transportation Insights does. Yeah, we... Closed the transaction in November of 2021, and TI really was like our big brother, right? I mean, they they did a lot of what we did. They they didn't have as much proprietary tech, but the list of clients is you know as impressive as you can imagine. They're you know, pretty they big had, company. They're big they're, company, they're big, right? Yeah. Yep. Are they publicly traded? No, they're not publicly traded. There's two primary founders that came together, had two uber successful companies, NTG, which is Nolan Transportation Group, Kevin Nolan, is very well known in our industry, and Paul Thompson at TI were, had the vision to come together and make really that your traditional freight brokerage, mostly truckload brokerage on the NTG side. You know, Of course, they've expanded as they've had success. And then Paul Thompson come alongside with that more advisory role, that more support role for big shippers. That was a service that TI really provided and that Swanley provided really. And we came at it more of, we were a much smaller company with our own, you know, kind of growing, building our own tech as we went. And TI went a lot faster, grew a lot faster, 
a lot more mature than us. And to see all of this come together was to me a, a no brainer and a really cool thing to be a part of. Excellent. Well, we'll talk more about that in a minute. But first, tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? Give us some sense of you as a, a young person. Well, as I've traveled around the country and around the world, I, I realize people can pick up on the Midwestern accent. So from Wisconsin. We, we sound smarter for some reason. That's I don't know what it is about being from the Midwest. We just sound smarter. I mean, we're better looking. That's <laughs> given. But we just sound smarter. That, that's what that's what we say, right? But we <laughs> There's a good chance I'll throw out a few uh, you betchas and uh, and and things, so it'll be a dead giveaway. But uh, from Wisconsin, went to uh, a University of Wisconsin school and really saw Midwestern values as really a, a good place to. What, to call did you grow home. up in? The, did you grow up in Wisconsin? Yep, I grew up in a little town named Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Oh, I've been there. That is yeah. a cool city. Yeah, like no one's really from there, right? I mean, but really, I was, really, I was. <laughs> really, really rich people are from there. <laughs> really rich people are from there. So we lived outside, actually, even in the township. But, you know, every kid in Lake Geneva grows up like renting boats and jet skis and, um, you know, cleaning them and doing all that or working in restaurants. And so I wasn't uh, different. I'm going to tell you my two cents about Lake Geneva. And I'd love to get your, your I'm sure you know a lot more about it, but Lake Geneva is a it's a massive lake. You can't see across it. It is a humongous lake. It's beautiful. There can't be many more beautiful lakes on earth than that. And what's about 90 minutes from Chicago. And so you had a lot of wealthy people from Chicago land would have cottages, air quotes, cottages, mansions on Lake Geneva. And then when there was the Chicago fire, one of the great Chicago fires, some families just left Chicago permanently because it burned down too often. And stayed in Lake Geneva. And I think at one time, not so long ago, you had four or five families who were on the Forbes 400 living on Lake Geneva. And when you, by the way, I, my uh, my in-laws live not far from there. So I would go from their lake, which is absolutely gorgeous. Wisconsin's known for this. Go from their lake over to Lake Geneva. And there's nice restaurants and bars. My sister-in-law got married on that lake. And it's kind of weird because it looks like a small town. You're wandering around, but then there's freight brokerage, uh, not freight brokerages, stock brokerages and lawyers everywhere. And you're like, what Capital kind of small firms. town yeah. is this? What kind, yeah. of, what's the kind of small town in Wisconsin is this? <laughs> uh, there's a ton of local rumors about Lake Geneva, like Oprah Winfrey lives there. I mean, the Wrigley family is still has a presence. The Harris family is there. Yep. Harris. Richard Drehouse just passed away. And his house went up and it sold in like a week. It was 42 million. So it's a, it, it's funny when I read like Paris Hilton bought a house in Park City for 5 million. I'm thinking like, you, I don't even know if you can get on like Geneva for 5 million anymore. Actually, Park City's up. Uh, Paris Hilton's now in Traverse City. She married a guy from Chicagoland, but his, his grandpa was the mate or the governor here. So Paris Hilton's been in Michigan a lot lately. <laughs> <laughs> Traverse City, but that is an absolutely beautiful area. So you grew up there. Now, did you play sports? Did you work? Yeah. What was your story as a young person? Yeah, I played Olympic development soccer, which was pretty cool. And then went off and for Team Wisconsin. And then I went off and wrestled in college, folk style wrestling. Wow. Did freestyle and Greco as well. And then I actually started playing soccer again after college. And I actually had a tryout with a semi, oh, I played semi pro, but I had a um, try out with a team in Brazil and uh, I didn't make it, but it was a really cool experience. Well, you're playing at a super high level. And I will say this, I've said it before on my podcast, I've said it many times. I always think people who play sports, even if you 
never played at that high level that you did. They learn to grind. They learn to win. They learn to lose. We learn to play as a team. And I think I think back to just the little league football, little league hockey that I played, playing all through school. It was so important. And I always remember my dad and mom used to always say, "You're never going to play pros." And even though kids don't want to hear that, you're like, "I'm going to play pro hockey or whatever." Not even close to that. But I was never allowed to miss practice. I was never yeah. allowed to be a bad teammate. Was not allowed. And I think that is an invaluable lesson for young people. Yeah. I mean, the the commitment to the team is really important, right? Like we still make our kids go if they're hurt or sick, they have to go and, and watch, which today my, my dad used to just tell us, oh, you have a game on Saturday. Good luck. I hope, hope you have fun, right? Like that's how it used to be. And now, I mean, there's parents that drive their kids to practices and watch. It's like, you know, I can't believe it, but you know, we, we make our kids go even if they're hurt or sick or can't play. And that means that we have to drive an hour to a game that our kids isn't, isn't playing it. But, you know, you can make it a social event too. So I, I want to I maybe kick off a quick story uh, regarding wrestling that really sets the tide for this podcast. After college wrestling, first of all, I, I was about ready to quit because I went to a, a top three in the nation, Division three school, lacrosse. And so we would beat division one teams all the time, like pretty much every time. Okay. We were really, really good. And, and we had um, nine out of 10 people in our lineup were all American. So it was incredible room to go wow. into. And I, I was like, I went from being like the big guy in our area, you know, in Wisconsin to, or, or at least in my weight class. And then up to college where I couldn't score on anybody. I, I couldn't even score a point. And our coach pulled um, several of us aside and it's like, guys, this is how it is. This is anytime you go to a new level, you have to like, you know, set new goals and, and you'll adjust and, you know, you'll be fine. You guys are right on track. And it, so there was a You're moment. Practicing against the very best. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so it, I became a good wrestler and any college wrestler by default I've learned is a good, was, is good. And they worked hard and everything else. But afterward, I had more fun coaching youth. Right. And, and then my kids coming up through and I coach high school and I coach youth. And, and I remember a couple other dads that were really, really good in my era. I actually got to coach with and became great friends with, including a guy that uh, we had two really tight matches and he beat me twice. And we were like best friends now. And I'm like, you remember that one guy from that school? God, he was good. Right. Yeah. He beat me. Remember another, that other guy, like later, like in the same day, there was three stories. Another guy from another school. Yeah. He beat me too. And then, oh yeah, that guy, he, he beat me bad, like whatever. And one of the other dads that was a national champ in college says to me, did you ever win? And I'm like, (laughs) I hardly ever lost, but I don't even remember the wins. You know, I only remember the losses. I I mean, so I lost five matches my senior year and I don't remember any wins. I remember every loss. So that, you know, that's even, you know, 20 plus years later. Yeah. That's the nature of, I've talked to lots of founders and one of the things that that I've learned, and I'd like to think people listening to my podcast have learned, is when you hear a founder talk, you've exited this company, you obviously got bought in this. So a very, a very big, very successful company bought your very successful company. They obviously saw something and everybody who's on my podcast, who's a founder talks about, well, this happened failure this happened failure this happened failure and it's almost like they just failed them failed their way to the top (laughs) and 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 i think i've I've said this to my kids that's kind of how i feel about life like you you know when i think of all the jobs that i had that 
wasn't the right fit. I get, I quit or I got fired. Just, you know, all, all those jobs that you have and you go, and then at some point when you're at the top, you go, it's been mostly failure. <laughs> yeah. You don't learn anything. I mean, if you start to think about even, even the basis of a, of working out, right. The, the goal of working out is to break down your muscles. So it rebuilds stronger. And sometimes your mind wants to stop before your body, of course, and, or most of the time. And so, so just the idea of working out, I mean, as CEOs where you need to work out your mind too. And I think back to things I was so excited about and, and that's just part of that learning process, you know, where I, I was so excited. Now we're going to do this guys. And then it was a total failure. And it wasn't a failure at all. It was a, you know, learning the business. Right, and, and even right. when I talked, when I talked to other even companies in logistics and they start getting really excited and tell me this thing, I'm like, you haven't, I already know why you're going to fail because of the experiences I've had, but go ahead. I'm, I'm not going to be the guy who tells you that you got to figure that out yourself. So, right, right. So what did you study at school? And then give us some career highlights before you started Swan Leap. Well, in hindsight, I, I had a professor come pull me aside in college and say, Brad, you're really shortchanging yourself. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you really aren't working really hard at school. And, and I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to do sales. I don't even need to go to school. I just, I'm here to wrestle. And he was right. And I actually came back to that professor for a, uh, asking for a letter of recommendation because I was going to go to law school. And, uh, and he's like, I told you, I told you. Right. So, so I studied marketing. I got a degree in marketing. I think I could have probably summed that up in about a semester, right? But so I feel shortchanged. I wish I would have gone back or if I could go back, I would have done accounting because that reading a financial statement is is really the, the basis of all business. Yeah, but not to put the marketing folks down either, because I'll tell you, I think some of the hardest jobs in this business is marketing, partly because they always work with sales and sales kind of, uh, I feel like one of my buddies always says, he goes, Sales has co-opted marketing and said, your job is now to give us leads because I hate prospecting. <laughs> and I said, that's kind of happened. So it's funny. I used to do some digital marketing and people would say this to me. I don't want marketing. Just give me leads. And I was like, well, that's not the way it works. <laughs> like, yeah. that's, a, that, 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 that's, that's like asking me to uh, take your wife out to a nice dinner and a movie to get on your so – so you can be on our good side. It doesn't work that way. You have to earn this stuff, right? And marketing's hard. I mean, writing those articles, content is maybe the hardest thing going on in this business besides the coding. Because right? yeah, valuable content, right? Because it has to be good have content. value. Good I mean, content yeah. like you're listening to right now. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Not easy. And I can blather on a lot easier than I've written probably a thousand pages of content. <laughs> It's easier to talk. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, you, so you went to, for marketing. What was your first gig out of school? So I worked at a country club in Lake Geneva, a pretty exclusive, and became friends with a lot of the members. And so I took a list of the 20 members I was closest to and wrote them a letter asking for a letter recommendation. Now I look back at that. I think, gosh, how times have changed. I couldn't imagine any college kid doing that today, but that's how, you know, we would, had to do it in the nineties, right? The olden days. So yeah. I wrote all these. Yeah. I got there. I, I got the, the GM to agree to give me their home addresses. And I wrote them a very professional letter. And out of 20, how many responded? What do you think, Joe? Mm, four. 
one. <laughs> so maybe they, maybe it weren't as close as I thought. One was like the CFO of Baxter. And I'm like, what? Come on, man. So no, ba- what does Baxter do? No, Baxter Pharmaceuticals, like massive, massive company. Like I'm like, I, I want him. Um, I have a distant uncle through marriage that is, uh, was on the board at Intel at the time. He didn't respond. So <laughs> I think sometimes people don't want to put their professional you know, reputation out there for somebody maybe they're not so close with. But one guy invited me in and he was co-founder of a airline spares company, which means they sell parts to the airlines. And I spoke pretty good Spanish back then. And I spoke really good Portuguese. I was in Brazil you know, for a semester. So he's like, Hey, listen, we have a job visiting and supporting these South American airlines. And, uh, you know, we'd love to, to have you. And, and so it was a great job because the buyers at the airlines loved my Spanish and Portuguese. So I was on like one call with Colombia, another call with Brazil. And most of the buyers would call me and say, Hey, I'm going to buy it from Joe, but I'd rather give it to you, Brad, you know, can you match his price? And so my, my sales were awesome. Then 9-11 came and oh, you know us airways parked like i can't remember the number like 2000 jets or something in arizona desert or nevada desert like a number that what does 2000 airplanes look like i mean who knows but there was such a surplus of of spares parts um that that business was tough and um so then i left and went to join some friends that were negotiating fedex and ups contracts to try to help people save money and former UPSers. And um, so that was uh, my intro. Was first logistics domestic- Yeah. I mean, the first one was a lot of, you know, we were buying from yeah, Air France, importing them and then sending them to Brazil. So we had, we had to have a relation, we had to have like a dual relationships with every airline in the world, right? Cause you're buying their parts and selling them parts, selling, you know, Alitalia's parts to, which does, I don't think it exists anymore, but Alitalia's parts to, South America. And so, so yeah, I got to, I got really a, a good eye opening um, intro to uh, how parcel worked. And you can imagine how going um, into business with friends ends up, right? So I'm like, that's it. I'm going to learn everything. And went to work for this company that was trying to build a nationwide network called Saya. And very nice. Got, yeah. And it was a crazy time to be an employee at Saya because like they didn't have stuff figured out. I mean, like OSND departments, you know, damage departments were just getting started. Fuel surcharges didn't exist. So what does OSD, OSND stand for for those who aren't in it? Oh, forgive me. Over shortage and damage. So if you have missing freight on your pallet or you have damages, like there's departments at all the major LTL carriers that handle that. So, so Saya is LTL, less than truckload, right? Do they have other operations then? I mean, I, I don't know where they sit today, of course. Um, I've been gone for a really long time. But, I mean, they were dabbling, trying to get into a freight brokerage offering as well. I don't think they do truckload. They do volume, of course, to, to backfill their LTL network. So but, where's their, what's their footprint? Uh, it's nationwide. Was it then? Was it nationwide? No, there was holes all over the place. And then within the holes, there was holes, of course. Right. So. No, I've worked with Saya. They're a very good company. I I toured I toured some of their facilities, um, thinking like uh, just before the pandemic. So very nice down in Texas. So yeah, Rick O'Dell had a great vision, and he bought all these regional carriers and 
I just can't imagine trying to take what he did was amazing, but it was a really tough time, a heavy lifting for a lot of people because we didn't have clear direction on how to handle things and trying to mash up different cultures across the country from formerly different companies was, man, he, he was a, he's a very uh, good CEO that he was able to pull that off. So what was next? Would you go after? uh, So, yeah. yeah. After Saya, I went to work for a really small online freight brokerage that doesn't exist anymore named Freight Click. And I think they saw what Tim Burton was doing at Freightview that ended up selling to CH. He was, he, or Freightview, no, no, that was, um, I can't remember the name of the company. Freight that Quote? He, freight Quote, yeah, Freight Quote, right. And then he had Freightview. And, Which got yeah. so, sold to CH Robinson. So if you go to FreightQuote.com, I think it's still there. It's just a CH Robinson company. Yeah, Tim was... Tim was really uh, impactful uh, on that online brokerage business. But at FreightClick, we basically didn't have our own unique playbook. And I joined the company. I, I wasn't a founder. But we just basically were trying to clean up their mess. And, I mean, Tim had good repeat business in that small mm-hmm. uh, category. But we were we were shipping, like, people's rocking chairs and stuff, like the U-ship business. Like, and it was, you like, no repeat customers. Consumer, and, yeah, stuff. it was horrible. Horrible because like somebody would ship this like a family heirloom and it would show up looking like a box of matches, right? And they would and we'd be like, okay, it's seventy dollars in liability, and they would be like, this is worth two thousand. So it was a constant. Like first of all, one time customers, the education was too high, the cost of acquisition per customer is way too high. The whole business was tough. There's some amazing, you know, I I get a lot of phone calls from people and a lot of emails from people, and they'll send me a note saying, hey, can you help me move this? And I would say more often than not, I I don't move anything. I'm a podcaster. I don't move anything. But um, they find me. They go. They type in logistics, and they, and they find me, and then they send me a note. And I would say sixty seventy percent is consumers, and they want to move. Just as you said, heirlooms. Yeah. yeah, they want to move. I'm moving from Florida to here, and I can't find a truck. I'm like, oh gosh. I try and respond, but it's not easy. I refer everybody to Uship because I think Uship has got that market. I think it's a this big, you know, it's a it's a good size market. Uship has it. They can line you up with, you know, Joe driving to Florida. You can carry Brad's parakeet with you in the back seat, or you can hire a moving company. Like they have that, you know, a bunch of one timers, and they make it so easy. So, so after after um, realizing that this isn't going to work, you know. And I really, there isn't really a big upside here. I started a marketplace and the marketplace was really, really good. And it worked really well. It took me two years. I, I, I bootstrapped the whole thing. I had no investors. So who you're connecting? So what I was doing was basically when someone had a truck or excuse me, a, a load, I was kind of starting to try to automate the load board and put more, give more tools to the trucking company to start to like essentially promote their territory on where they wanted trucks, like truck postings, the way load boards are. The lanes are. they're yep. good at, yeah. Yeah, but then the, the vision was that if I put a truckload in, then it would automatically start to recommend new, new, new providers and new partners. Then I could connect with them in much like a LinkedIn fashion, connect, and then I now would see that they're a trusted partner and I could chat with them. It was awesome. And I had a really big company, a huge automotive supplier, using the system and i had some this is some of the early investors of echo are down in arlington heights uh some of their their private wealth the investors of the firm (laughs) 
that invested in Neko, those individuals have their money. At, those at, are Chicago guys, Chicago right? Chicago guys. They they were going to give me money that the um, Arlington Heights private wealth office was going to give me $2 million. And I was on my way to sign the term sheet. And I was really excited. But on my way out, I made the mistake of looking to see who's logged in. And I see no one logged in for three days. And I was like, what, what's going on? So, okay, I'm thinking I'll call them in the car. I'm thinking there's like a bug or something, right? And I got a hold of them and I'm like, they were doing about hundred million in truckload. I'd rather not say the name of the company, but, and I'm like, what's going on? And like, is, is there something wrong? And they're like, no, no, it's, it's, uh, everything's awesome. We love it. We love, we're saving a ton of money, you know, a couple hundred dollars a truckload. Just right now we got to get all these orders out. We're so busy. It's the end of the month. And I'm like, you're thinking to myself, whoa, I would think that now's the time you need to use the system. And I started to really understand like just by hearing that sentence over the course of the next 20 minutes, the way that large companies procure freight, right? There's planning departments, there's forecasts, there's contracted rates, there's static routing. And to use a separate system is a lot of work. And it's outside of the, the current process. So I drove down to this meeting and I said, guys, I told them the story and I'm like, this isn't going to work. And they and I don't want to do this deal. I, I it's going to fail. And they said, and, and, and remind you, like I hadn't had an income in two years. Like I I I burned all of my four hundred one k, all of it, and and all of my IRAs that I I saved well as a as a young man. But all of it was gone because I was living on it. I had kids and rented a house, and so I literally got down to that meeting and was like. I, I can't put my name on this. I know it's going to fail. And I know this isn't my last thing. And they said, no, Brad, we don't agree with you. We think that you sold us and this is the future. This is going to replace brokerage. And we're going to do this deal with or without you. I'm like, you can have it. And I signed away my rights to all of it and gave them the source code. So what'd you do after that? So then I'm like, what am I going to do now? Right? So I went back to start helping people save money on small parcel. And then I had somebody that uh, wanted to help me to help them with their LTL. The problem with that, when you're out of your house doing that is, first of all, you have to do the prepayment audit because you got to know what's coming in on the bills, right? You got to know if they ship something. You got to have a tech so that, you again, you know what they shipped. Um, I can't just do a, a, for the size company, shipping like 1 million or 2 million in LTL. I can't go to them and say, I'll run an RFP for you, pay me $200,000. I mean, they're not going to, you know, they can't do that. So I needed to have some kind of tech. And so I put it, and, and I had hired a ton of developers, right? Like on like Upwork and it used to be called Odesk and, 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 and all those like places. And that's how I, that's how I did it. I probably haven't had employed at this point, probably 25 like, developers from all over the world that I was paying via PayPal and, and everything. So I, I, I got to, I, I got to know a little bit. I'm not a developer, but I met a guy on Craigslist Madison and I started showing him what I had as far as I just needed like a little LTL Raider. I called Mercurygate. Just, I needed some little tool and they're telling me it's like 50,000 startup. Right. <laughs> right. And like, and I'm like, man, are you kidding me? Like I can't even pay my bills. Like, like this is a non-starter. If you had told me 5,000 startup, I couldn't have done that. So I met Jason Swanson and he started looking at the code and he's like, 
he's the first programmer I ever met Joe that was like, I can work with this. I, I see what they did. I wouldn't have done that way, but I can make this work. Right. Because every programmer out there is so smart. They're like, oh, this is garbage. We got to start all over. Well, maybe they're not that good. You know, Jason, anybody who's gotten a chance to work with Jason understands that he might be the smartest person that I've ever met. I know his IQ is in the 160 somethings. Um, he has undergrad in, in microbiology and neurology. He's doing D DNA sequencing and stuff and then got into programming. Like, so he's at another level, of course. So, so he started to create some software for you and then where'd that go? Well, we had Rogan Shoes, still a customer today of Swan Leap and, you know, basically family friend for life. He was having a problem. He, we were so accidentally in the right place, the right time, but Jason first of all was able to use new technology we didn't know how any other TMSs worked. You know, we didn't even know that you load tables. We didn't know any of that. <clears throat> so what we designed with Rogan's was they we did some. They were doing omni-channel. This little this little uh, shoe chain with like I think they have forty stores. They were doing omni-channel before that was even a thing. They were actually faxing. They were like, okay, in, in store six we have ten pairs. In store four we got two. That shipped from store six, and then they would fax the UPS label to that store. And they, they, he told me they got in trouble from UPS for faxing labels because they weren't read, you know, able to be read by the scanners anymore. But so what we were doing with them was we were helping them balance their inventory. So if someone went to the catalog or went to, like, to the store and they didn't have your size, we would, we, we know where the shoe is going to ship. We know what's being shipped. We just don't know where it's shipping from. So we have, we have to solve this puzzle. So what we did was we then would hit their inventory table and pull back with some very basic logic, which store is going to get that order. Okay. Now right. we have origin zip, destination zip, and product weight and size. Then we took now those pieces, hit FedEx, UPS, DHL back then, uh, speedy delivery in the post office and then wrote back into their ERP. Here's how you ship it. Here's the label. And we made a couple calculations. They wanted what their actual cost was. They wanted the publish rate. They wanted what they called the Rogan shoes rate, what the customer was actually paying. We wrote it back in their system. And then on a green screen in the store, the, the store would see their eight orders and they would just hit print, 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 print. They didn't even know Swanleaf was there. And we were like microservices TMS in 2013, 2014. That was that was the start, yeah. So where did it go from there? I mean, could you do beyond small parcel, or you were doing small parcel and LTL for them? Correct. Um, we're, no, just small parcel, and then um, and then we had another e-commerce company that had uh, some similar challenges getting their system to work. They had just installed NetSuite, and they needed a, a tech to kind of do that logic planning. And we were sitting there watching their them uh, plan their loads or watching the, the people ship. And they were doing, they were a small company doing probably a thousand a day or 1500 packages a day. And we're watching this person and he was supposed to, any, any order that came in under five pounds, he was supposed to check the post office rate to see which was better. Right. And we're watching him. He's watching, we're shadowing, watching what he's doing to try to automate it. And all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, wait, that that was like three pounds. You're supposed to check the post office. He's like, yeah, I know, but I, I got to get these orders out. I don't, I can't, I can't do that right now. Like, so we've watched all this happen, right? So we implemented our TMS there. Um, it was an e-commerce company, and you know that was successful. And then we launched a company, a printer, 
that was doing LTL and truckload. So then we, you know, um, were able to really, with those first three customers, have small parcel licked, LTL licked, truckload licked, and we even had like the bidding, the, the what we talked about in the spot market integration. So it was really a powerful solution. And those comp- was that was that all in one? So like, if I said, hey, I want to ship this, it would tell me. Joe, that's got to go LTL. This Correct. one goes small parcel. This goes truckload. It it's interesting. I got to tell you, I I worked at a third party logistics company, and we did a lot of mostly less than truckload. But we had customers who did that small parcel, and we had customers that did truckload. And it was for a long time. We talked to a lot of different technology providers. Can we do all three in one system? And the, and the answer is always, yeah, of course. And the answer in reality was, no, we can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember going through that. And then we, we messed around with some uh, add-ons. It was, not, it was not perfect, but for one of our customers, we were able to, if you put it in there, it would say That's, that should go small parcel, this should go to LTL. But what's also interesting is you mentioned UPS versus FedEx versus USPS, post office. And you mentioned Speedy. I think or this is where we're heading, I think, is there's like a whole bunch of regional small parcel companies. LaserShip just kind of started that consolidation. I think we're going to see those five or six that'll soon be, in my mind, national companies that are that are hopefully in one system. Because it's a pain in the butt sometimes when, like in less than truckload, I can pick the right carrier. I pick the SIA to go in the lanes that SIA is best in, and I pick... Holland for the lanes that Holland's best in didn't always have that opportunity with the small parcel. And that drives you crazy. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, 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 it's easy to, when you see this side of advising people how to interact with FedEx and UPS, there's a whole sub industry that I think doesn't treat FedEx and UPS so nicely. And I think it's important to remember how good they really are. I mean, the idea yes. that you can, at 3.30, you can start thinking about something, right? And have it to your you know, door in the morning or even like more crazy, you know, 3.30, 4 o'clock in Seattle, you could have something in Miami by nine. That's insane. That's crazy. And so the right. networks are good, right? But, but I mean, they're, they're absolutely stress tests. So it's easy to find, you know, a couple of things that fall off um, on the network. But the challenge that FedEx and UPS have had, I mean, just the, their business challenges are almost like never ending because they have network issues. They have heart, you know, location issues. They have, I don't know if you know this, but like most terminals like get complete, like there's, there's zoning committees that are out there with like, or people petitioning the zoning committees with like pitchforks and torches, like for no terminals in any cities. And like, I mean, it's, it's almost like FedEx and UPS. I think about union issues. I mean, when you say terminals, you mean that's where their locations, where their, their distribution centers in effect. Yeah, I mean, every LTL carrier and every parcel carrier has has to have a terminal with trucks in and out, and nobody wants that in their neighborhood. So, right, like, so I, I'm just thinking about all the possible business challenges that FedEx and UPS have, even beyond the service. I think what's also interesting, and again, I can say this having done the less than truckload, is we talked to less than truckload carrier, and so they'd say, I give them, these, these are the lanes that we're going to move for this new customer. And they have lanes that they're making a little less in, little more in this one, a little less in this one. So they, they rate that, they give us the rates and, and we put, we put that into the, the tariffs into our system. 
And then we go to the next one and they say, here's what I'm good at. Here's what I'm bad at. Right. And so they price that all out. And then the only business you win is the business where you have low margin. And so at a certain point, if you're a less than truckload carrier, like, why am I talking to these guys who are putting me into a system that only lets me win low margin business? Well, <laughs> I, I would say that 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 what you just said is absolutely true. Like seven, eight years ago. Yeah. I think what's happening now is there's an expectation that rate shopping and automation of rate shopping is, is the standard today. That's clear. Not amongst the, you know, the leading companies like uh, Manhattan, Blue Yonder, SAP, Oracle, like those four, I would say are the leaders that doesn't happen yet. They haven't really evolved in a long time, but I think any, anybody up and coming is automatically rate shopping. But second, I think LTL carriers have also gotten a lot better of understanding their true cost to serve. Really, when you start, they, they, they did some things and I, and I went round and round with many VPs and many pricing departments when they started like talking about, oh, we're losing money on this, on this customer. I'm like, you're not because you're applying, first of all, they're shipping full truckloads of LTL. So you can't apply your same marginal pickup cost They're And then where are they delivering? Are they delivering to rural areas or delivering to DCs? Like you're already going there anyway. So back in the day, Conway was trying to convince me that they were losing money on New Balance's business. I'm like, there's no way you guys are like, you know, first of all, the rates aren't that good. But second, you guys are backing up a trailer and then you're shipping to another DC. Like it's basically a truckload move. I love, I love Conway and they did a, such a good job for me uh, the old Conway. Now it's XPO. We did a little bit of business with them, you know, uh, certainly eight figures, right? But what was crazy is they were never inexpensive and I don't blame them. I don't blame them. And one of the things I, I live right by their headquarters, they're headquartered in Ann Arbor at that time. And I would talk to people who worked there at cocktail parties or whatever. They they weren't from this business. They were more coding people. And they would always say, it's kind of scary because the fastest growing part of the, this is, goes back 10 years ago. Fastest growing part of this business is freight brokerage, 3PL, yeah. 3PL and broker, yeah. and it's low margin. And I was like, I, I used to say all the time, they, the reason they would never assign a salesperson to our account. And I was like, I get it. Because they don't want to grow business with us. And, you know, that's... that's well, FedEx and UPS did some cool things, I thought, that were should have been picked up by by LTL carriers in, in you know, in the, you know, it kind of like, look, that example FedEx and UPS did. They were only assigning a rep to any companies under a moving number. It was 50,000 sometimes. It was 75,000 sometimes, 100,000 sometimes which I think that's that would have been made sense for LTL carriers. They never really followed suit. I mean, Sai at the time had like, I remember the uh, astonishing numbers when I left in 2008. I think like 51% of the business came from six national sales reps and 49% of the business came from 250 reps with cars and expense accounts and everything on the streets. So I, th- I thought that was a really interesting tale, right? Because I... I would think that as an LTL carrier that you would be wanting to say anybody under $500,000, let's let them find a freight broker on their own and not service them at all. I mean, because the cost of service is too high. I think, I think they've done that. I think, you know, they've said this is strategic business where we're going to have a sales guy. And I think this is where brokers and 3PLs fit. Uh, model and it has to you know it, I, I can also say this when I was an automotive I'm an automotive guy originally 
when I started working, there'd be interior trim suppliers at for, for Ford Motor Company. Hundreds of interior trim providers. If you added in fasteners, hundreds more, right? So at some point they said, we're going to go from several hundred to 30, then to 20, then to 12, then to six, then to three. And I, I suspect they're at four or five. Okay. Um, but I remember being part of that cons- that that weeding out process. I worked for a company and I was an engineer and I remember they said, we're number seven and they're weeding down to six. We all knew who we, we were and we got bought by number six. And I remember when I got into the third party logistics business and they said, oh yeah, USF Holland works with hundreds of 3PLs. I thought, not for long, they don't. Yeah, that's <laughs> Not right. for long, they don't. Yeah. And, and, and I could see the nature of less than truckloads a little different than truckload in that the top 25 players have what, 90% of the business and the top 10, I think have 80% of the business. So volume wise, and I could see where they might say, we're going to have strategic relationships with the biggest three PLs. We're going to work with the TQLs, the Robinsons. And I'm, I'm sure I'm missing, I'm using them as an example. Don't call me, don't write me, <laughs> <laughs> but I could see where they'd say, we're going to have exclusive relationships because it doesn't make sense for us to try and manage yeah. hundreds of relationships with onesie twosie companies yeah so you kind of outsource your sales department i mean it and i haven't been so close to that side over the no me neither i should shut yeah. my pie hole yeah. I, I pontificate <laughs> I, but, uh, yeah right I now Joe, going. You, you have a vp of sales that's uh, going shut up you're shut wrong up, you idiot. don't know what we're shut doing up. yeah so <laughs> I, I apologize mr vp of sales you know, yes i, I do too. Out, out of that uh, uh I used to say, I used to say to all those guys, thank you for working with us because we serve at the discretion of the king. I appreciate the because we could not work without them. And I again, I do respect. I work with trucking companies, and I will tell you that is the hard business. That is tough. And I'm going to do a podcast coming up on this. The real technology in this business isn't what we're talking about. It's those big rigs shooting down the expressway. Those are hundreds of thousands of dollars. And require a lot of maintenance and a lot of gas. And we kind of get past that technology. Like it doesn't matter. Well, you know, every, every shipping clerk when they, or every shipping logistics person on the shipper side, when they take their first job and go to a warehouse, they need to go to an LTL carrier and see, oh, yeah. and see a, a line haul um, come in and the cross dock operation happen because they won't be so upset when they find out their pallet ended up in another state. The fact that they get anywhere, again, I, I, I give kudos to FedEx and UPS. I give infinitely more or the same to every other uh, right. LTL carrier because it's amazing. I remember taking, we had an LTL carrier we were close to, so I'd take my new hires, like every quarter we would go to a big LTL carrier. I won't mention the name, but one of the, a thousand trucks here in Detroit. So it's one of their bigger terms. And I told, <laughs> I told uh, uh, somebody asked, how was that? I said, well, the, the, the guy who's in charge of the terminal, I forgot his title, but general manager of the terminal. I said, he's kind of like a cross between like a general and like a biker king. I go, I was afraid of him. And I, and I said, while we're walking around, he kept saying, must have said to us five times, you know, any drivers and they got to be good drivers. He goes, and they can't smoke weed. And he goes, that's what we're, we're looking for. Good. Guy. And I remember you really get it. You, when you're walking through there, the efficiency that's required to make yeah. money is never, it, it, it's high and it never gets lower. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you to all the LTL carriers out <laughs> yep. there. So, so 
So you started Swan Leap. So you talked about your first three customers. Talk about what was the kind of some of the inflection points because you guys obviously grew pretty big before you sold the company. Yeah. So the first year, I think we did like 110,000 in revenue. And the second year, we did like 125,000 revenue. And then we did a million and then 8 million and then 50 million and then like 100, oh. 130 million. Now you were selling software to other companies primarily. Correct. Correct. So it was a lot of software, but honestly, because we never took institutional capital, like we were, we would basically chase the shiny object. And and that was, that's the way I knew to grow. You know, Uh, that was me. So Let me ask you, why didn't you, now was it, did it, was it just you or did you have a partner? Yeah. Jason Swanson, uh, CTO, they were, we were the, the two primary founders. And then we took some family money from two, two families. Uh, one of them was uh, Governor Tommy Thompson, his family. He wanted to reinvest in family, uh, Wisconsin companies. Is he a Wisconsin governor? Yep. Yep. He was a Wisconsin governor for a really, really long time and then went to go work in George W. Bush's cabinet as health and human services secretary. I remember when I used to drive, this is years ago, but the governor of Illinois and the governor of Wisconsin were both named Thompson, I think. I, I don't, I, it's hard to keep track of all those Illinois governors. <laughs> yeah, they're all, yeah, I know. I won't, yeah, we won't get into that. Well, it's funny when you drive into Illinois, it would say governor, everyone from Illinois goes to either Michigan or Wisconsin on the weekend. And, um, and there's a name for those people. Um, but when when you would drive into Illinois from Wisconsin, there was a sign that said, Governor Thompson doesn't want you to come back. <laughs> meaning meaning the governor from Wisconsin was saying this, like, move your business funny. to Wisconsin. That's funny. Wonderful place. But anyway, so why did you guys not, why didn't you take money from VCs? Well, I mean, there's certainly a lot of folks out there that'll tell you, if you don't need to take money, don't, right? And and we right? can listen to that. I'm just curious that. what yeah, your no. reasons were. There's a lot of people that say that, and um, and and we we had a, a business that worked. Every new customer that we got, we hired new developers. And Jason Swanson has, you know, he still is working like eighty hour weeks. You know, eight years later, he doesn't have a burnout. I mean, we can talk about burnout toward the end, but I just took, you know, with this um, kind of my background we talked about earlier, like the wrestler and all that kind of, you know. I, I really just have a huge distaste for comfort, right? Like I think to be good, you need to constantly be uncomfortable and, and meaning in all areas of your life, including your work. And so I only knew that as we had success that we we're on the right track, I need to work harder and harder and harder. So I just took on more and more and more. And, and um, like, I would make it a point that I would never travel in the weekdays because I was missing work. So if I had to go to a meeting, I'd always try to schedule this for like Fridays or Mondays so I could travel over the weekend and then not lose work time, like stuff like that to try to be more efficient. And I love what I love you said about being, uh, getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. And it's funny, that's, that's very much what the Navy SEALs always kind of push. And, you know, if you, I've read a lot of these books by these Navy SEALs, but what's interesting is people who are successful get good at discipline, Right. They also, you know, by the time you became very successful early on, you got used to having uncomfortable conversations with people, employees, customers that you might have worked, said, we, you're not a good fit for us anymore, letting people go, unfortunate part of the job, but also just the discipline that you just talked about. You know, you, you were hard on yourself. Yeah. And so probably, probably expected a lot from everyone around you. 
to be successful, you've got to really get uncomfortable. I mean, you have to get very comfortable with being uncomfortable. You yeah. To push yourself. And, I and mean, that's, there's a downside to that. I think you're going to get to that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it certainly is, is tough and it's getting tougher and tougher in this era because you can't almost have a, an uncomfortable conversation with somebody today in, 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 in business. You know, you have to, you have to kind of dance around direct candor. I mean, it's, it's tough. Right. And so one of the things I always looked for, and this, I didn't figure this out until like the last three years of the company, <clears throat> what I'm looking for in a candidate to be on our team is somebody that has a pursuit for improvement in their life, in their personal life. Because if you give me, I remember we, we interviewed a guy that I was going to hire and he came from this really big orange company in Wisconsin. And I was so excited about him on paper and his credentials. And I really liked the guy, but he told me, and he's not there, but he told me that I'm like, what, 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 if on the weekends, what would you do if you didn't need money? Right. Or what would, tell me what a Saturday morning looks like. I think those are my two questions. What do you, what do you, what would you do if you didn't need money? And I would always say, well, why aren't you doing that? Second, what do you do on Saturday morning between seven and noon? Like, I want to know that about somebody because that's going to tell you their drive, right? That's their time. What are they doing to invest that time to improve their life? And he told me his passion was surfing. I'm like, wow, you live in Green Bay? And he's like, yeah. I'm like, well, how often do you surf? And I, I'm not a good surfer, but I, I, I mess around with it, right? And he's like, oh, I get to surf like one or two times a year. I'm like, but that, that's your drive? And the guy that I hired was a, he did those like tough mutter contests and stuff, right? Yeah. So, so he would get up at five and sacrifice. He said, I had to get my workout in before, before I got my kids woke up because I want to spend time with them. And I hired him because of that, because of that answer, because like that was a pursuit of improvement. So now my, my thinking is, and, and I've seen this on our t with my management style and my drive, it's not easy to be around. It's tough. You're always pushing yourself to be better and you know, admitting when you make mistakes quick and then and, and embracing the mistake and moving on, right? <clears throat> and if you have somebody that's in a pursuit, maybe they a pursuit to learn a language, a pursuit to, you know, become a vegan. I mean, I'm not a vegan, but I respect people that have the discipline to pursue avenues like that because they believe it's good for their for their body or their or the or the earth or whatever. Anybody who's pursuing something that involves sacrifice. Right. You you can have a conversation with them and they're likely going to look at it in as being thankful because now they have a way uh, something they can improve about themselves. All of the I have I have so much respect for all athletes but especially the individual sport athletes. I mean, if you gave me a wrestler or a swimmer, I would I would say they're equal in terms of the mental toughness, the 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 adversity, the you know, all of it. And, and, and all of the sports are that way, you know? So, so that's what I look for. And it doesn't have to be sports. I don't think that's fair to, to say only athletes, but anybody who's pursuing improvement. It's some sort of mastery that they're attempting. And I think that is super important. And, you know, it, and not to pontificate about what you should do in your life, but I just went to some class reunions. My sister's a year younger than me. So I went to her class reunion, went to another, my own. And you go to the, as you get a little older, one of the things I said is you got to stay healthy. You got to stay vibrant. Like I think a lot of us, myself included, I gained weight during COVID. Now I'm trying to get to the gym and get that off, right? It feels horrible, right? But you got to stay healthy because you get to a class reunion, you go, holy God, look at people limping around. Like some people aren't healthy and that you got to stay healthy in mind and body. 
Secondly, you got to keep your relationships going. But one of the third things I really think is important is you have to have something that drives you in this life. Something that, because by the way, this is also where the United States and many people who are listening are in the United States are, is becoming a wealthy country. Many people can retire early and that's good. Brad, somebody could say, good for you, Brad, you retired, uh, you, you, you got your company bought, you have enough money, now you can uh, be a slouch and drink yourself to death or whatever, whatever bad habits you get in. But I suspect that's not what you're going to do because you've got habits that you've built up over time. You have to have something that drives you. And I've said that my kids many times as they grow up, I said, making a lot of money is great. Having career success is great. I said, but there's lots of people who are successful because they wanted to paint and they're painting every day. Yeah. Or they wanted to start a ministry and they started it. They're making a difference. Whatever you're into, make it your passion, make it your life, make it worthy of you. The other thing is like, here, here's how I feel today. And I, I feel that I have a, an obligation to inspire people around me to pursue their, the, exactly that, Joe, like their, whatever greatness is in them that I can say, look what I did. Don't forget, you know, I, I missed rent payments. I, I couldn't make payments. You know, all these, all these things that went, we went through my, my 15 year old, we do about five ski trips a year. So, I mean, that's, you guys can imagine. Very it's pretty nice. expensive. It's, it's, it's probably the, with, with all the travel, I use my airline miles to put them in the back. Right. And then, but, and we do a lot of trips because there's nothing that bonds I found for me and our family, nothing that bonds the family likes skiing because you have so much downtime on the chairlifts. Very nice. So he doesn't believe me when I tell him during those days, we bought a zoo pass to the Milwaukee County Zoo. And there was times that my wife and I had to talk about if we had enough money for gas to get to the zoo. I am That is not a joke. And he's like, yeah, right, dad. Yeah, right. And that is true. And so I, I need to make them understand that there is, I can't sit and be complacent. First of all, it's not in me, but second, I need to continue because I have to outperform them in school and I have to outperform them in all the areas of their life. So I can push them and say, Hey, look, the 15 year olds, he's, he's a wrestling in high school now. And I send him my runs. I'm like, did you do a five mile run today? Why? Why didn't you do your run? Like, I'm a little harder on him than I am an employee, but because he knows I'm holding him to a high standard. I was good. I was a good wrestler in high school. I didn't enjoy it very much, but uh, no one does. Being a being a chubby kid, I remember I always had to wrestle against the kid who was a year older than me, and I always remember the guy I wrestled against. I'm just this chubby kid, and he's got a beard and mustache. I was thinking. I know him like he flunked like three times like he's a man and i remember like and i remember he, as i would be pinning him he'd say lynch i'm gonna kick your ass after school and i believed it and i <laughs> but i always remember being pushed to do i never went on the wrestling team and i remember i i, I played hockey and i didn't want to i didn't want to do that and um i wish i did because one thing that is good about wrestling is you have to be so disciplined about your weight and maybe crazy about your weight because <laughs> I always remember buddies. Yeah, th- that has all changed now, Joe. Now, now it's in college they weigh in an hour before they wrestle. And like I had a roommate at UW Lacrosse in in um, 1997 that died. And there was one in Michigan. Oh no! In the, in the same year, 1997, they died. Uh, three kids died. Dehydration. Yeah, uh, heat heat exhaustion. 
So they, thankfully, it used to be like that. The day that Joe died, I, I, I cut, I think, 25 pounds in three right. days. In college, you weighed in the day before. So you would cut like 25 pounds, and then you would just lay around for a day and hydrate and then perform the next day. And now they, they, they fixed all of that. It's, it's much healthier. I think I would have been better off if I uh, got in that habit. But anyway, so um, talk about, you, you mentioned, you know, you had this company and you sold it when? Uh, November. And so did, you, did your partner st- and you stick, stick around for a while? I'm still helping with transition things. I'm not, I, I don't own anything uh, in terms of a domain, like a domain or an area that you don't have a job title. I don't have responsibility. No, but I, I have helped a lot and I will continue because I, I can't believe the team they've assembled, the resources they've assembled, the uh, technologies they've assembled, the circumstances of TI Holco, that amazing. How about your partner? Did he stick around? So he is taking a really important high role in the product and uh, he's going to do great. And uh, he's lucky to have them and they're lucky to have him. It, it's it's just perfect. So so talk about some of those challenges along the way. You 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 grew this company. What did you say? What, you from a hundred thousand to when you how much were you guys making or re- gross revenue? revenue around two hundred million? That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So talk about some of those inflection points and some of the challenges you had and how you dealt with those challenges, not only professionally but also personally. I mean, there's just there's so many. I mean, first first of all, personally, it was really important that we just talk about, hey, I'm going here because of this reason, and I got my kids really involved in the business. We did a lot when we took on a bigger office. I remodeled a lot of it myself on the weekends and at night because I just didn't have the money. And my kids needed to help me to carry stuff and do things. And I look back at that was probably one of the most. Was your office in Madison? Yeah, it's in Madison. Yep. And and I just look back, like we did a pallet wall, like we did that. My kids are using the, the nail guns and stuff. And I mean, I look back at that. It was just, we did out of necessity. Like many of us probably, you know, children of the 70s probably went to work with our parents if we were blue collar. But you start to think about that's what shapes you as a person, actually. So the lessons, the lessons there. So when we that's the that's the challenge sometimes when yeah. you're too successful, you say to your kids, yeah. "I don't want you to have to go through what I did." But that's what made you successful. Yeah, I mean, I absolutely want them to go through what I did. You know, my um, when we got the when we achieved the Inc. number one spot, we flew all my kids to the to the Inc. conference because- What year was that? 2018. So you're the fastest growing company on Inc.'s list. Correct. Inc. Inc. 5000, Inc. number one. Now there was probably, there was quite a number of logistics companies that made that list this year. I want to say 70 or something. Okay. Did a, a lot of them did very well. It was our time. But you did a 2018. That's incredible to make that- Yeah. Flexport was there with us. They were like number six. They were they were good. And we beat PopSockets- which remember, I, Pop Sockets, I don't know that. That's the thing that goes on the back of your phone. You remember they? Yes, yes, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. So I called. Uh, I talked to the CEO. He's in Colorado, and I'm like, "Can you make Ink Number One Pop Sockets for us?" And he he thought that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, he, he, yeah. No, but uh, but so I took my kids to the conference, my whole family, and, and and they got to celebrate all the work they put in too. And my son, the 15 year old, he worked for us in uh, uh for i think in 2015 or 2016 and we couldn't pay him because he was underage so he got stock so he actually got a, a little payout on, on the stock thing so it was it's been i think that was probably a key for me to keep uh, everything together personally 
the fact that I was able to communicate what's happening with, with everything with my family so that we didn't lose. And then, and then doing things to recognize, you know, the, the time, like skiing was really vital to us. But I think Sheryl Sandberg said there's, when you're an entrepreneur, you can choose between family, work, health, and sleep. Four. Right. And you get to pick three. You don't get to pick. F- so I built this amazing home gym in, in like on a monthly basis, added more, added more, added more. So I was able to not get my, my son was like um, 12. I took him into the gym with me uh, once and the owner of the gym's like, no, he can't be in here. I'm like, I'll sign a waiver for him. Don't worry. And I'll pay for him if you want. But he's like, no, he just can't be in here. I don't allow it. I'm like, well, fine. I mean, I need him with me if I'm going to work out because I got to leave for a trip on Monday and, you know, or whatever. So we, we ended up, my wife and my son and I, and then even like my, my younger son who was like eight, he would work out with us because, and not that I want him, you know, doing all the things, but I mean, it was just really good time bonding. (laughs) Yeah. And bonding, you know, like, and so I think as an entrepreneur, if you have that kind of commitment to your work, especially a, a founder and a startup and a scrappy company like Swan Leap always was just a scrappy company. You, you have to recognize your surroundings and, and understand, you know, that you, you're going to make some sacrifices in your relationships, both family and personal, but you got to do the best you can to balance that on your way into work, make an effort to, to not completely let that, you know, uh, circum. So, so you try to keep, so you tried to keep your health by, and you, your health and your family on that side. So how did you manage like adversity? You had to have tons of it along the way. How did you manage that at work? I mean, I'm pretty, I'm pretty candid with people. And, um, and, and so I just had a situation yesterday where one of our customers reached out and copied me in an email because he hadn't heard a response. Right. So I had to reach out to actually, it was our first employee that didn't respond to this three emails. And I said, hey, imagine how this feels from the customer. Imagine how it feels from me getting this email. I'm in Puerto Rico. I don't want this email. The customer wants a response. I don't care if you have a reason. It just doesn't feel good to the customer and it doesn't feel good to me. So like I, I, that's, I found that's a really good way to manage today is to just explain from the other side. Help them understand. This lady's mad. She's wrong, but she's mad. But you don't know if she got, you know, there's right. bad news about her parents or, a, you know, there's family stuff. You, you don't know. And she's maybe looking at you as the outlet. So, so just pick up the phone, man, and call people when there's adversity and, and, and deal with it. Understand that we're all dealing with stuff and like, you know, go into it that way. Right. And, and that, that's a learning process. You, no matter how good you are on your journey to, of that you know, approach in business, you can always be better, including right. me. Like I've, I've flown off the deep end on stuff that I was completely wrong about. And then I got to go back and apologize. Like, you know, but apologizing quick is important. Yeah. I think Brad, I think there's a spectrum on one far end. People are too soft on underlings and coworkers and partners and everybody. And, uh, and not particularly candid, like, no, Brad, you know, I, you know, just kind of real soft and, and that's wrong. And then there's the other side, which is like the overreaction and 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 anger and you and I think we all come from one side or the other, and you have to moderate it and get it to the that right that sweet spot. And I think my feeling is always kind of the same when I find the situations I run into is try and be open and candid and kind. There's no reason I can't say, Brad, I really didn't like the way that went today. 
uh, you're a great guy and I love working with you. <laughs> you know, let's, let's get this straight. So I, I don't want to go forward with resentment. I don't want you thinking that I was happy with that. And you might say, okay, well, Joe, this is my own perspective. It doesn't have to be mean. It just has to be, you know, there can be kindness and, and, and firmness at the same time. Yeah, that's important. I mean, just that balance. But I think, I think helping people understand like where you're coming from and, yeah. and communicating expectations are probably the keys to running a fast growing organization. Cause you certainly, when you have a startup, stuff's not in place. It's not structured and communicating to people like, I know we were going to do this, but now we're going to do this helps them to at least have confidence that there is a plan, you know? Yep. Yep. So I know I'm going to lose you. <laughs> so um, I want to wrap this up. So I wanted you to tell me what you think is what's next for the industry. What's next for uh, your company, Swan Leap and TI. Uh, I know you can't speak in great detail on that now. Well, you can give us some. And then what's next for you? Yeah, I mean, it's really an exciting time all the way around. I mean, what what these guys have done, I have not seen in the industry and with TI and, and the team they've assembled is just top notch all the way throughout. And and what what really solidified the direction for me was when I saw everything firsthand. And I mean, we were struggling to hire a salesperson. They were hiring a hundred a week at one point. Um, that's not that's not an exaggeration. <laughs> right. And and they had training you know, classes. Like, I think they I had my like, part. I think you found the company I want to work with. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, but but I mean, just the the not only the professional accolades of all of the leadership there, but also the people they are. You know, like I I just it's it's an awesome organization. I think they have a good path. I think that I've reached the limit of my expertise with them in terms of my contribution to, to, to leading, the, you know, a, a company, of course, I'm good with the, the startup structure. I don't like having meetings with anytime marketing comes out with, and, and they're not doing this. I'm just saying for, as an example, you know, imagine a marketing message comes out and they got it. You got to meet with the lawyers and stuff first. Like that. I don't like that. Right. I'm a startup guy for me. I, I really thought like, Hey, this is going to be good. You know, it was a good exit. And I just want to maybe buy some rental properties and, and be at the beach, but it's been a month. And I have meetings, uh, you know, every day, of course, but I'm bored in terms of, you know, not having a clear direction other than supporting, you know, TI. I'm, I'm doing some business generation and development for them. I'm excited to share the message. But really what, what gets me excited, I've, I've had a lot of people reach out to me, founders, and I'm really excited to try to just contribute advice to them. And that's where my focus is today. I mean, I'm not looking for money out of them or, or looking for anything for my, you know, my- You can always throw advice. it out, Brad. If you got yeah. extra money, you just throw it out. <laughs> well, well, what, what what I mean by that is like like there's a lot of founders that are like kind of I can tell they're like okay, but how much is going to cost me? I'm like no, no, you got to get a handbook, man. You got to you got to do this. You got to you got to communicate these expectations. And I've had some nice conversations with people and given them like really free advice based on what I've gone through and and uh, what I think. What I've learned. I think what you're talking about is so important because one of the, the things that makes the world works so well, then is, is, is business. And I think what's been great in the last few, last generation is you saw all these angels, angel investors pop up and they aren't just bringing money, they're bringing expertise. And I think what we've also seen with venture capitalists and we've seen it with private equity, we're seeing with people like yourself who've, who've made successful exits, they're willing to share their knowledge. And I think we see companies used to take three generations, four generations of families to build a fortune that would get you on the Forbes 400. Now it happens 
in 18 months sometimes. Yeah. I mean, you look how quickly Snapchat guy. I mean, very rare. But the reason it could happen is because there was the expertise out there, people willing to share that expertise. People could invest That's a great money. Point. And there's people, and I think there's an armies of them now, people like yourself who've had successful exits who go, hey, Joe, I can tell you what's the next, the next, the next pit pitfall you're going to fall into before you fall into it. Let me let you know. Yeah, <laughs> it's important to surround yourself. And that was, you know, on the topic of capital raises, I think you can look at some of the high rate, uh, the, the, I mean, excuse me, the high, the high flying companies right now in our space. And this is just my opinion, like what Jet McCandis specifically has done is absolutely incredible because one of the challenges that I had as I went through was like the, what it takes to be a founder and to get to five employees is a different skill set than it takes to get to 20 employees. Right. And, and, and the hardest thing for me was like, well, we're, when we're in a room and we're, we're basically underpaying people because we don't have any money. And all we can do is, is do this like rah, rah, let's do it. Let's change the world. And, and every startup is that way. But then you realize like, oh my gosh, Joe is running finances, but he's really, he's not going to get us to, to the next level. And we got to get it. We got to hire Joe's boss. And, and that is so hard. And, and so like, I think anybody's considering raising money out there. Don't just look at the success of Jet McCandis and Project 44. Look at the fact that he has evolved from a startup guy willing to finance his condo to a multi-billion dollar CEO. That's almost impossible. Most of the multi-billion dollar CEOs are hired MBAs that you know went through you know all of this training and were VPs at major companies before and then hired in. Now it's yeah, that is know. that is very rare. And you know, it's interesting. Even Bill Gates, maybe one of yeah, the most yeah, successful yeah. people on earth. I'll give he Jet was, some time. He's on his heels. It's yeah, funny. he's on his right. He's on you, his way. Yeah, Jet, Jet, keep up the good work. And Jet's supposed to be on my podcast soon, hopefully. We went to, you know, you look at Bill Gates. He became the CEO of that company. He was the founder. Then he became the CEO. He demoted himself to the chief technical officer. And he said, because I enjoyed it more. Yeah. But the fact that he was able to build that company, just like you know, as you mentioned, Jet, going from startup, scrappy startup to funded and and by the way, it's not just him saying, I'm going to be the CEO. It's a whole bunch of other partners that are in there saying, we still want you to run this place. So that's impressive. Well, here's where I think, here's where I think the, the genius of that story is, right? And, and this applies to a lot of other companies. So for all the other founders that are super successful going, Brad, what about me? Like, yeah, I, I know. I, I just, Project 44 is in the news last week. So, but here's the thing. They've pivoted a lot in their offering and their message, first of all. So I give him tons of credit for that. Okay, that's awesome. But second, he's been able to surround himself with such top-notch leadership and advisors that that that's where the genius was, right? And that's where I feel that Swanleap could have done better, where we should have brought in a more senior leadership earlier on we just didn't have the money so that's that's what my advice is we kind of wrap up here joe like my advice to any tech company out there is you know take money but even if you're if even if you don't need the money because you can't do it alone you can't you can't continue to to do this right like if you thinking back to wrestling just to kind of pull comes full circle on that there's a lot of teams in, that in, in, in high school wrestling that have five or six guys in a row in the state finals. 
So you have five or six guys from like 130, 135, 140, 145, 152, 160. Those guys are all in the state finals because they, you know, you know, iron sharpens iron, I think is the, is the yeah. expression. And, and that's what Jed did. And that's why project 44 is worth two and a half billion dollars because of the, the caliber of the people that continue to get involved in his organization. He did, probably didn't need the money. You got to bring in that expertise, those other perspectives, and yeah. uh, that's good. Good point. Yeah, that's what I. That's that's why Swan Leap wasn't a billion dollar company. I think the tech was there. <laughs> it was that we didn't have the right team to get us there. I think what you've done is pretty damn impressive. So, so um, I've I've joked about this every once in a while on my podcast. So I've, I've talked to a lot of founders, and I'm. I was talking to a friend who was doing, well, Ryan Schreiber and I talked about this and I said, there's people who make, you know, these billion dollar companies. I said, that's impressive. I go, but the guy who lives down the street from you, who's got a company that's uh, revenue is $10 million. He's done pretty well for himself. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, you know, when he's looking down and going, oh boy, it's he doesn't have a billion dollar company. In some ways his life is better. Yeah. You know me though. I, I I uh, I don't think about that, right? I expected that success out of myself, and I only think about what I could have done different, and and um, and I hope done. to embark that on others. Yet. No, well, <laughs> I want to embark those lessons on others, and and right now my feeling is there's a I, you know I can just kind of make a uh, make those suggestions and recommendations and help people to learn from my success and failure failures. So. So, so what I'll do, Brad, is I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile and anybody who wants to reach out to you and talk to you about uh, their biz or I love that, yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or hanging out in the sun in Puerto Rico or <laughs> skiing, they can reach out to you. And I would highly recommend you guys connect with Brad. Very smart guy, very interesting guy. Brad, thank you so much for being on my podcast and congrats on successful exit. Thanks. It was fun, Joe. I appreciate it. Now the hard part, you have to figure out what's next. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I got to stay ahead of my kids so they can't uh, take me down. So, (laughs) Thank you so much for being on my podcast. And thank all of you for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. You've been listening to the Logistics of Logistics podcast, where we engage in conversation with experts in the logistics field. For more details, visit thelogisticsoflogistics.com or follow Joe Lynch on LinkedIn.